Hello and welcome back to the Scottish Centre for Global History's podcast series on the British anti-apartheid movement. My name is Paul Feeney and I am joined once again by fellow historians of South Africa, Dr Matthew Graham and Dr Chris Fever. This week we're going to discuss more aspects of the Free Mandela campaign as well as the anti-apartheid movement's legacy in public history. So I'd just like to start with a recap from last week's. What was the Free Mandela campaign and how did the anti-apartheid movement evolve into the 1980s? So thinking of that recap and the the rise to prominence of the anti-apartheid movement and the Nelson Mandela campaign, we have to obviously um, situate it within the evolving context of British history, South African history, and also various other mechanisms that are, are emerging around the world. So the rise to prominence of Nelson Mandela um, is part of a concerted effort by the anti-apartheid movement. So, I mean, things that we need to to bear in mind are things like the effort to to mark Mandela's 60th birthday, a decade before, in the late 70s, is mooted by Anuga Reddy, who is the uh, secretary of the the UN Special Committee Against Apartheid. And this becomes a a campaign that emerges within South Africa and then is um, extrapolated out into the kind of the international scene more broadly. The British anti-apartheid movement are looking for ways to to mobilize the British population in the wake of the Soweto uprising. So again, using events in South Africa to build up broader displeasure and abhorrence of, of apartheid. And this moves into a more cultural scene. We talked last week about music and the various other um, kind of cultural events that are occurring in in the 1980s. So basically what's emerging is a layering up of the anti-apartheid movement. They are using various different tools of mobilization through consumer boycotts, through disinvestment actions, through sport. Um, and as we, we, we move towards this pinnacle moment of the, the Mandela campaign, very much using music as a, as a way of drawing into the struggle. I mean, we mentioned last week as well, a few specific events. I mean, I think a key one is the Artists Against Apartheid at Clapham Common in 1986, where a quarter of a million people turn up to it. I mean, this is extraordinary numbers, which I think shows you growing popularity of the anti-apartheid message and its ability to draw people onto the streets in support of its actions. And this musical element becomes a, you know, a really key uh, tool um, as the 1980s progresses. So I think that's a quick background, a quick recap. I mean, obviously, there's lots of other things going on. Um, but just to say that the, the Mandela campaigns do not emerge out of thin air. That's a really important point. It's, it's, it's a building up of the movement, so it's not, it's not necessarily taking away from the boycotts and, and disinvestment campaigns, but it's actually moving from, from these political and economic factors into uh, cultural spheres. So what was the impact of that kind of move to culture and music on the general population in Britain and mobilising them towards the anti-apartheid struggle? To answer that question, we'd probably, the, the best example would be to look at the Wembley concert in 1980, whereby the anti-party movement in collaboration with different partners in the private sector and the music industry organised a concert to celebrate Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday. There were some objections to showing this concert on the BBC, particularly from those on the right who thought it was an overly political event. Um, And this, as was probably mentioned last week, was watched by around 600 million people worldwide. And there was, I think, 80 
odd thousand people in the in the stadium at the time. You had many key stars from the music industry, Whitney Houston, Sting, Stevie Wonder, etc., who performed. And this event really sort of propelled the anti-apartheid movement's reputation at the time among the, the wider public and made it much more widely known. I think also in terms of its impact on, a, on sectors of the, the wider population, the Wembley concert had a particularly strong impact on young people as well. Matt mentioned there about how music was used by the anti-apartheid movement to promote this campaign and, and that allowed it to reach out to a much younger audience. Obviously, it had had support from the student movement throughout, but this, this concert allowed it to reach beyond the student movement into the wider population. So yeah, it's, it's another example of how the anti-party movement was able to take its message um, to, to a much wider audience. And um, I think the Wembley concert is, 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 a, is the pinnacle of that. And last week, we discussed the Stop the 70s tour and the beginning of a cultural exclusion around South Africa. So with the Wembley concert and the protest in Clapham Common and, and this wider popular cultural exclusion of South Africa, what was the reaction among white South Africans who would, who would have identified with Western culture to being excluded? I think it's quite hard to generalise for that question. Um, however, for a, the younger progressive South Afri- white South Africans, this is obviously a, a, you know, it hurts. You know, they can't see their favourite um, favorite musicians, their, um, their favourite kind of film stars aren't coming out either. You know, it does mean that they are excluded from, from many of the things that are going on in a very globalised world during the 1980s. I mean, you only have to watch films, films like uh, Searching for the Sugar Man, which is an excellent documentary if you haven't seen it, but it, it shows you how this really obscure artist from the US, who no one's ever heard of in America, becomes a major superstar in uh, South Africa because of the exclusion. This, this cassette was basically you know, smuggled in. It becomes a big, a big thing. And so, I mean, that's actually a very tangible example of, of how the cultural boycotts impact white South Africans. I mean, you've also got songs like by Spitting Image as well, which, which are like, I've never met a nice white South African. I mean, you know, this was a very public display of how the, wo- the rest of the world thought about white South Africans. So these do build up. It's not, it's not necessarily the, um, the, a major issue that brings down apartheid by no means at all, but it's just another, it's another screw in the efforts to isolate the South African state in as many possible ways, uh, ways as possible, uh, as possible. Um, and also affecting the, um, the psyche of the white population. So for some, it does make, it, make an impact. For others, they really couldn't care less what the rest of the world thinks about them. You spoke a while, as well about the roots of this being in the celebration of Nelson Mandela's 60th birthday within South Africa, being thwarted by the South African state. So is, is this cultural exclusion something that begins in South Africa and then leads into the British anti-apartheid movement? Or is it something that the British anti-apartheid movement takes on independently and um, makes, makes global? I think the, the Nelson Mandela campaign and a lot of the anti-apartheid movement's campaigns, they, and I think we've mentioned it in the first, the first episode about how the anti-apartheid movement took the lead from the people of South Africa. And things like Nelson Mandela's, the initiative for sort of commit, focusing a bit more on Nelson Mandela as a figure comes, as Matt mentioned at the start of this podcast, from within South Africa. And this is taken up by people in Britain and throughout the world, which then led to the sort of global, the internationalisation of, of the Nelson Mandela and, and the struggle for his release. So I think, yeah, definitely the anti-apartheid movement takes this up. 
is able to, through events like the Wembley concert and other and other events, to internationalise it to a greater a greater degree. So I think it's it's again it's it's a South African initiative which the anti-fascist movement takes up and broadens out and sort of projects to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. And how important was the power of Mandela as a symbol for this? Uh, did he come? Did he come to embody everything that was wrong with the? South African state, or um, was it was it a, a broader movement um, which which he was just a part of? If you speak to anti-apartheid activists, they will say it is the Free Nelson Mandela campaign and all political prisoners. However, in the public media and uh, imagery and symbolism of what what emerged in the 1980s, it is very much centred on Nelson Mandela. Now, I mean, there are various reasons as to why Nelson Mandela is projected into this uh, position. I mean, first of all, I mean, he was a well-known politician. I mean, at the Rivonia trial in 1964, he publicly said he was prepared to die for the cause of freedom and justice. So he, even though he'd been in jail for so long, it did mean that people were aware of who he was. But also the the message of you know social justice, democracy, freedom, you know all those kind of things were beginning to emerge, and so he was disassociated from the actions of the ANC because he was in prison. The armed struggle and the ungovernability of the 1980s was really stepping up, and this is actually something that there's a backdrop to a lot of the anti-apartheid movement's actions is that the images that are being projected in the media here in the West um, show the brutality of the apartheid state. But also there is a significant right-wing backlash to that, which is saying that the ANC is a terrorist organization. And so Mandela being in jail, he, he is not connected to any of those things. And so he becomes, becomes like a pure figure that can be um, projected in whichever way the movement wants. And he is freed in some ways, he's still in prison, I should make that very clear, but, but he's freed from the politics of the ANC at the time. Now, he would, dis, he would completely disagree with that, that point, but the, the international movements were able to um, project certain images and values to him, um, which then enabled people to go, okay, Nelson Mandela's in jail for this, then we can extrapolate out to the broader population to really understand why they might be struggling you know, against apartheid and, and looking for, for justice. So he does become a symbol, but lots of other people within the ANC and also out with the ANC would argue that the movement was way bigger than Nelson Mandela. I think also one of the, the key things about the Nelson Mandela campaign is that it, the timing of it is, is crucial to its success, right? In the sense that it begins in the late 70s, but its success only, uh, it becomes really successful in the mid to late 1980s, which coincides with resistance in South Africa that we talked about last week. Um, and this wider context in South Africa and Britain. So I think that's important to remember is that it, it's occurring within this wider context where anti-apartheid or opposition to apartheid is sort of in the news and it's high up to the political agenda. So it, it, timing is quite key as well. I think the other thing I would stress as well about the Nelson Mandela campaign is the impact that it had on the anti-apartheid movement itself. But we've talked about what impact the anti-apartheid movement was able to have on the British population through the 60s and 70s and, and then into the 80s. The Nelson Mandela campaign, particularly the concert, really brings the anti-apartheid movement into the mainstream and it attracts a, attracts a considerable number of supporters uh, to the movement and 
speaking to activists, they talk about how their meetings in the wake of the Wembley concert just grew in size so much that they had to have pre-meetings before meetings so that they were, they were organised. So I think, I think in thinking about the impact of this campaign, is that's a really a good example of, of the impact that it had in, in, in broadening the anti-apartheid movement, making it more mainstream and, and growing its support in the late 1980s. I mean, just to, just to build on Chris's point there, the, the actual paid up membership of the anti-apartheid movement peaks in 1989, the highest number of, of members paying their dues. So again, we can see a direct correlation between apartheid is obviously coming to an end by that point. There is, there is, a, there, there is a growing sense of inevitability, but equally this comes out of the Mandela campaign of 1988. That, that period in the 1980s is undoubtedly the, the largest surge in support for the anti-apartheid movement and reprehension against apartheid within Britain and worldwide. On that though, like as we've discussed in the previous weeks, Nelson Mandela's been in prison since 1964. The human rights norms and values and moral reprehension at apartheid has been in the mainstream since the 1960s, at least in rhetoric. So why does it take until the 1980s or even the mid-1980s for this to become such a, a popular movement? I mean, essentially, Paul, this is a very difficult question to answer because you're essentially asking why apartheid comes to a close. And in short, it is the amalgamation of a series of interconnected factors um, that stem from within South Africa and also from within the international community as well. And without going into too much detail about every single strand of it, the growing sense that apartheid has now definitely run its course. The international um, business community are beginning to withdraw in part, as we talked about last week, because of anti-apartheid pressure. The conditions in South Africa are becoming um, increasingly unstable and the ungovernability has really stepped up by the mid-1980s. The Cold War dynamics are beginning to fray, especially um, with the um, policies uh, from within the Soviet Union, Perestroika and Glasnost have changed the international dynamics there. Um, the Angolan civil war um, leads to an international settlement in Southern Africa, which also leads to uh, the belief that change can happen through the negotiation process. And we must remember that something we've mentioned several times over the last few podcasts is that this is all about layering up. The anti-apartheid movement is a, is a huge um, undertaking and a very long struggle that, that evolves step by step by step. And so essentially, yes, that moral message that, you're, that you, you mentioned is becoming ingrained within the public, the public perceptions and also through education and through um, the various other ac actions taken by the anti-apartheid movement. All these things begin to coalesce. So there is no easy way to answer that question. The anti-apartheid movement is part of this wider set of things going on. The anti-apartheid movement is a cog that helps isolate South Africa, educate po populations and lobby governments and businesses for change. And so the 1980s just basically sees stars align in one sense that leads to the, the growing isolation of the apartheid state and growing legitimacy for the ANC as a government in waiting. With the interviews you conducted with anti-apartheid activists, what was the key takeaways from the Nelson Mandela campaign that you got from them? They are on the whole very positive about the Mandela campaign. 
yes, there are some critiques about the framing of the concert and the Freedom March, but um, by and large, they acknowledge that this mainstreamed the anti-apartheid movement. It allowed for greater reach, both in terms of mobilization and also in the, the message that they were getting across. Um, and also this then spurred on other things that the anti-apartheid movement could do in terms of fundraising and the campaigns that it conducted on the streets of the UK. So the anti-apartheid movement and its activists clearly acknowledged that the 88 Mandela campaign was a vital part in drawing it into the public consciousness in a, in a way that it had not achieved in the decades before. I think that's actually an important point that Matt raises there about the interviews we've conducted and activist views on the Mandela campaign. And for a lot of them, actually, the Mandela campaign isn't their highlight. As Matt says, they recognise that it was a really important campaign in terms of broadening their support base and, 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 and increasing their capacity for activism, and particularly around like resources. They, they managed to raise a lot of money on the back of the Nelson Mandela campaign. So they, they as Matt says, they recognise that this is an important campaign in history. But for them, a lot of the stuff around boycott sanctions were probably more important campaigns to them personally, whilst recognising the success and the, the, the broader impact of the Nelson Mandela campaign in particular. Just back to the campaign more broadly, we spoke about the, the distanced relationship that Mandela had with the more nuanced actions of the ANC throughout the 20-year period that he'd been in jail by this point. How did the actions of the anti-apartheid movement affect the overall legitimacy or the uh, changing perceptions of the ANC uh, as we move towards the latter 1980s? It was part and parcel of this. I mean, the ANC had multiple strategies and this was one of them. And the anti-apartheid movement was assisting in that strategy. So the ANC was pursuing both an armed liberation struggle to, to forced negotiations, but also in exile, it, as I mentioned already today, um, was a, growing into a government in waiting and had built up um, enormous amounts of credibility and legitimacy around the world. For example, it had more ANC officers around the world than the um, apartheid state had embassies. So again, it showed you the reach um, that the ANC was having. And so the anti-apartheid movement's campaign is part and parcel of this growing legitimacy, growing credibility. Just to add a little bit to that, um, in terms of in, within the British context, in the Mandela campaign, the Mandela himself becomes almost the sort of like embodiment of the ANC. And Matt's talked a lot about the like the narratives that have been were projected onto him of like unity and sort of forgiveness, etc. And that sort of helped to legitimise the African National Congress in the eyes of the of the British public, definitely. Genevieve Klein's work on on the anti on the Nelson Mandela campaign in particular talks about how it was important in enhancing that that African National Congress as a standing among the British public and the international community more broadly. I I think that's that's crucial points that both of you raised is that by the nineteen eighties it's not necessarily the fact that Mandela can distance himself from the actions of the ANC, but rather that the ANC can back the image of Nelson Mandela and uh, encapsulate the values that have been appointed to him. Uh, that's not to say that the ANC don't represent these values, but rather they were able to effectively market them through uh, the Nelson Mandela campaign. But, I mean, just, just in response to something you said there, Mandela never distanced himself from the ANC. 
he he was offered the chance to um, leave prison in the 1980s and he refused to do so until there had been substantive um, shifts in the negotiations. So it's it's other people projecting onto him rather than him projecting a different message to the ANC. I should make that make that point um, quite clearly. So moving moving beyond the Nelson Mandela campaign of the 1980s, how has that filtered into his legacy today and the the wider legacy of the ANC and the anti-apartheid struggle? I mean, to really understand Mandela, first of all, we have to build upon the initial points that I made earlier in this podcast, you know, around the values that he embodies. So social justice, democracy, freedom, reconciliation. He was also someone that was willing to make some compromises for the greater good, this, this, this moral authority. He was clearly extremely principled and was willing to make um, significant changes and compromises to, to ensure a, an outcome that was favourable for as many people as possible. So you've got this bedrock that is his personality and that, that is his, the values that he is um, projecting. But Mandela is a complex figure. And I think Chris and I have been kind of hinting at this already. There are, there are multiple narratives um, and ways in which we can understand who he was. And for most people, it involves the grand narrative, the single story of the hero who single-handedly saved South Africa. You only need to watch films like Invictus or watch the Long Walk to Freedom film and you would get the sense that it was Mandela and Mandela alone. Don't get me wrong, Mandela is clearly part of this, but many of the narratives that we have that surround Nelson Mandela involve willful revisionism and ignore significant parts of his history and his story. You know, part of this is because of the struggle over memory, um, over interpretation of the anti-apartheid struggle, Mandela and his legacy. Is it South Africa? Is it the ANC? Is it his family, for example? We often forget that you know, Mandela was part of Mkonte Bisizwe. He was part of the leadership of the organization using political violence to seek change. Um, you know, a, a fact that is often um, ignored is that he was still on the USA's terrorist watch list in 2008, which again demonstrates the background that he had. Now, he, he did renounce violence and he uh, and again moved towards reconciliation and pragmatism um, to achieve those ends. But dependent on your viewpoint, dependent on the timings, the history, your own ideologies, you can kind of attach different meanings to Nelson Mandela. I mean, and it is easy to see why many people might see him as, as a saintly person because of all the things that he did do. Um, and many people would not be willing to offer reconciliation and justice and freedom after 27 years in jail. But in his own words, um, he, he said, I, you know, I'm not a saint unless you think of a saint as a sinner who keeps on trying. And we must remember that people have our, our own inco incoherences and our own flaws. But in the terms of the national uh, story of South Africa, the armed struggle and the anti-apartheid movement, it is generally only one perspective that is put upon him. Now, that is not to denigrate anything else. I must make that clear. But there is usually only one version of him that is presented, especially in a uh, international setting. So with this almost saintly image that you touched on there, Matt, about what had been 
made of Nelson Mandela through uh, institutions such as the anti-apartheid movement. Do you think that moulded uh, Nelson Mandela's changing position when he left prison and encouraged him to adopt this peaceful path uh, rather than go back to some of the more divisive politics uh, that happened previously? Do you think the, the image that had been attached to him uh, allowed, afforded him the position to, to fit that image when he, when he left prison? I think that he realised that the path of violence was only going to lead in one way, and that was to a extremely destructive um, and, and violent endpoint. And so he sought to achieve reconciliation. Now, he was highly unwilling to give up elements of the armed struggle and also the kind of rolling mass action that emerges in the 1990s, because he realized that this was part of the strategy. Um, of the ANC and also fundamentally the National Party was not willing to compromise much itself and was using enormous amounts of state sanctioned and also secretive violence um, within the transition process. So the decision to give up violence is based on a end point that he wants to achieve, yet there is the full recognition that this violence um, part of a, a wider strategy but they i think mandela various members of the anc and also some of the more enlightened national party politicians realize that change has to happen but got to make it clear that there are other members of the anc and especially those connected to umkonte bisizwe who are very unwilling to give this up and so mandela is struggling um, against members of his own um, organization to pursue a particular path and I don't think, again, it's necessarily the projection of, of ideals upon him. These are his, these are his visions, these are his views. Um, the anti-apartheid movement obviously was placing some of those things upon him, but he himself had, had adapted and, and also projected these himself. These are his ideas about reconciliation, about peace, which then perhaps feeds in to the other discussions that are happening about him elsewhere. I think it's just important to add as well, when we talk about the anti-apartheid movement and the Nelson Mandela campaign and, the, and this idea of them sort of being able to project an image onto him, they didn't just make this up, up off the cuff. They, they, they knew, people knew about Mandela in the 1960s and they also, the anti-apartheid movement had great contacts with the ANC and people in South Africa. So they were very much aware of, sort of Nelson Mandela's sort of views and uh, values, etc. So that essentially they were sort of taking this information and Referring back to some of the, the interviews that Matt and I have done, a lot of the activists reflect on how they were a bit worried about whether he would live up to the, the image that, that, that they'd helped to create around him. Um, obviously, they, they needn't have worried in, in the end, but at the time they were sort of worried that, you know, what, if, what, will he say something that sort of, just sort of undermines what we've been saying about him for years? But I think, yeah, I just wanted to make that point that this idea of projecting doesn't just come from nowhere and it is based on contacts with South Africa and, and a knowledge of Mandela's character and values. Mm. One of the most interesting aspects that both of you touched on there was this idea of the, the ideals being put on Mandela, but almost one of the most effective things I think he'd done uh, prior to his release and upon his release was admitted his own fallibility and his own humanity. Would you say the expectations were mitigated by Mandela and the ways he could go about the negotiation process? 
I would argue no. I think that actually, even though he was tempering the expectations, many people expected way more of him. And yes, he understood that he had the moral authority and he had also the ability to reach out to different constituents in South Africa. But I think people still believed that he would do way more and achieve way more. Now, again, this is where we have to try to avoid the the compartmentalization of, of Nelson Mandela. You know, I think you, you're right to say there that he he is a human being um, with his own fallibilities. But I think that the world not only wanted Mandela to succeed, they needed him to succeed. And because of the, the legacies of apartheid and because he was someone preaching reconciliation and peace to avoid essentially a race war, the world needed him to, to. So the expectations upon him continued to be extremely high um, long after he gave up the presidency as well. I mean, hence why in um, 2010 in Football World Cup, um, they wheeled him out onto the pitch at the, the beginning of the um, opening ceremony when he really should have stayed in hospital. So I think a lot of people continue to expect loads of him. These, how have these expectations changed over time? The NC has obviously been in power now since apartheid ended so to what extent are the nc still uh, using this uh, mandela magic to hold on to to power well i think it depends who you ask um so you have very different um interpretations and views from those who are in south africa and from those who are outside of south africa now again i'm, I'm making generalizations here so we, we must appreciate that each of us will have our own perspective on nelson mandela but you know, the ANC, when they took power in 1994, had, had a huge task to overcome, you know, entrenched inequality and racism and seeking to make the country work for the majority and not the minority. I mean, this is an absolutely fundamental um, challenge that ANC faced. And the ANC has been slowly chipping away at many of those, those structural difficulties. But we must appreciate that, you know, you know what, these aren't going to change overnight. You can't make instant uh, changes to a system that has been subjugating the majority um, for, for centuries. And so part of the, the issues and questions about Mandela and to some extent the ANC are, are linked to the slow pace of transformation in South Africa. I mean, the, the most stark example is the one of economic inequality. Um, economic inequality has actually grown since democracy in South Africa um, and there is the feeling that many opportunities to help uplift the majority um, have not really worked. So some of them are due to the ANC, some of these are due to the international capitalist system um, and some of these are due to entrenched racism and inequality. But I mean the most, you know, one of the most stark ones is the, the unemployment rate in South Africa is horrific. And for the youth of South Africa, that unemployment is over 50% as of um, last year. This means that people under the age of 24 in South Africa, almost all of them who will have been born after democracy, after apartheid ended, are beginning to look for, for, for answers. They're trying to work out why things haven't changed. And, you know, for many people in the West, a criticism of Nelson Mandela is, is almost sacrilege. Like you, you cannot do this because of, of, of what we've projected upon him. But I mean, especially since the Roads Must Fall campaigns uh, a few years back, 
um, there is a growing and very vocal critique of the Mandela le legacy within South Africa, very lively debate. And I mean, this is mainly to do with this lack of transformation and the belief that in the transition period, period um, Mandela was far too accommodating to the white minority um, and he showed forgiveness to this community. But this in turn links back into the Mandela perspective. People in 2020 are blaming Nelson Mandela for their, their travails, their problems, but that's prescribing the ills of the country to a single person. I just wanted to pick up a point there about um, the image um, of Nelson Mandela within the West and how sort of criticism of him was, could be seen as sacrilege. And I think that's yeah, certainly, certainly the case. And if we look at the legacy of the Nelson Mandela campaign and then also just Mandela himself in Britain, He's also left a legacy on the urban fabric of Britain. We talked about with the Nelson Mandela campaign and how um, one, of the, one of the activities of the anti-apartheid movement was to um, name streets and buildings after them. If you look at, if you look at like towns and cities across Britain, there's Nelson Mandela Street, Nelson Mandela Square. So there's left that, that continuing legacy on sort of the urban fabric of Britain. They're actually currently trying to get a statue of Nelson Mandela in Glasgow as well. So I think the impact of the Mandela campaign and Nelson Mandela in Britain is, is also huge and, and, it's some, and it's worth noting within the context of our broader discussion. Yeah, so I mean, I think those are crucial points that you raised there about how the legacy of Mandela can continue into uh, 2020 without other aspects being taken into account, without the political and economic realities of South Africa currently being accounted for. Just back to the British anti-apartheid movement, uh, given everything we've discussed, um, just overall, or could you pin uh, one specific movement of the anti-apartheid movement and, and say that was the most successful, or do you believe it was a, a larger coalescence of, of different strategies? I am going to go with the campaign for sport. Putting aside the Free Mandela campaign, which I think is extremely significant. Um, I'm here with sport. Now, my position on this would be that um, the anti-apartheid movement was incredibly successful in politicizing a, a cultural um, thing um, and making uh, the public, uh, not only in the UK, but in other parts of the world, fully aware of what uh, apartheid uh, meant. So for example, activists that I've spoken to have said they would go and talk to people and then say well look my child if they were black couldn't play with your child if they were white in South Africa but actually playing a sport is about the team it's about it's about unity actually so dividing them on race is not fair and then also you have the stop the 70 campaigns you have the olympic committees you have the commonwealth games I would say that sport becomes an incredibly symbolic and extremely useful way of drawing people into the anti-apartheid movement cause um, and even if they weren't necessarily a paid-up member of the anti-apartheid movement, could still support the boycotts and actions through um, a sporting setting. And it was extremely symbolic in the way in which it was delivered as a campaign. So mine would be the boycott campaign of sport. And again, leaving aside the Mandela campaign, which we've talked a lot about today, I agree with a lot of what Matt said there about sport, but I'm going to argue that the consumer boycott was probably the most influential of the anti-apartheid movement's campaign. For similar reasons to the, sport, the sports boycott generally, it, it managed to reach an audience 
that the anti-party movement may not have reached otherwise, in the sense that it allowed people who weren't necessarily committed long-term activists or interested in international politics to, to do something that would have an impact. I mean, we can debate the, the economic impact of the boycott, but I think more than its economic impact, it's the symbolic impact of it. And by picketing supermarkets and reminding consumers, I think Matt used the phrase politicising consumerism last week, which I think is a really great way of, of describing it. The anti-party movement was able to keep this issue of apartheid in the minds of the broader public when they were going about their weekly shop and forced them to make a decision about whether they were going to buy South African goods or not. So I think in terms of it having some economic impact, but also just the way in which it kept this issue of apartheid alive in the minds of ordinary Britons is a key aspect of the and boycott campaign and it was the longest running campaign of the anti-party as well starting back with the boycott committee in 1959 and the boycott continued up until the um, South African elections essentially. I think yeah aside from the, the Mandela campaign I think the consumer boycott was the most influential of the anti-party movement's various campaigns. It's interesting that both of you have touched on topics of bringing apartheid politics to really simple, clear and concise messages. It seems like the anti-apartheid movement's most successful mission was, at least symbolically, making the public aware of the issues of apartheid and the the questions of economic uh, significance is almost secondary to the politicisation into the anti-apartheid struggle. And I think both of them were necessary precursors to the Free Mandela campaign and the explosion of anti-apartheid politics in popular culture. So moving back to this idea of legacy that's been concurrent throughout this podcast, when it comes to the anti-apartheid movement more specifically, how do you think that has been remembered in public history in Britain and within the wider world? So Paul, what I'm going to say now is going to be a total contradiction in terms. Um, The anti-apartheid movement is both appreciated and recognised for being a um, an impactful movement, yet at exactly the same time, it is underappreciated. So people will remember things like the Nelson Mandela campaign, but they might not necessarily associate it with the anti-apartheid movement in terms of the way in which it is um, acknowledged in certain places. It's not as strong. And so we have the remnants of the anti-apartheid movement's actions. You know, Chris mentioned... Um, you know, streets and, you know, colleges and bars being named after Nelson Mandela. Um, And I think people have just accepted that that's part of the UK's structure without actually fully appreciating how it got there and also why it got there. Um, So I I know what I've just said is two polar opposite points, but I think to to paint the anti-apartheid movement as a movement that is like embedded in popular public history, not really. But at the same time, people do remember it when you start talking to them about it. But I don't think it is the first movement or the first thing that would come to their mind if you started asking them um, about social movements. I completely agree. I mean, I would argue that the anti-apartheid movement is, and others have argued this as well, is that it was one of the largest and most sustained social movement of the 20th century in Britain. The tendency when to look back on the anti-apartheid movement and to think of this question of success is probably not the best way to look at it. It played a small part in a much larger movement against the party, but an important one as well. Thinking about this, 
Other social movements like Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament or Greenpeace, they would probably be recognised by the public to a much greater extent than the anti-apartheid movement would. It does definitely have this, this issue that Matt talks about, of it being people recognising that it was a thing and that it, it did something, but actually is there that understanding on South Africa, but also within Britain as well? It's a bit of a contradiction, as Matt says, but I think it's a, an accurate assessment of, of, of where we're at with the public history and anti-apartheid movement. And to build upon that as well, the vast majority of South Africans, yes, they know that the international community um, stood in solidarity, but if you actually ask them what the anti-apartheid movement in the UK did, they would probably not have much of a clue about what we were talking about. I think just as well in terms of trying to understand why this why this is a case and why the anti-apartheid movement not had that level of appreciation and sort of public understanding is partly because apartheid it ended, it essentially succeeded. And then after 1994, this issue disappeared from the global view, so to speak. And this links back to a lot of what Matt said about Mandela and people expecting that he would come to power and that would, that would solve everything. And that's probably taking people's eye off, eye off the ball, so to speak. I mean, the anti-party movement continued after Nelson Mandela's release up until 1994 to varying success. And it, it, after the elections in 1994, it transformed into an organisation called Action for Southern Africa, which is essentially a charity that works on Southern Africa. And perhaps the anti-apartheid movement ended, that's maybe led, contributed to it, this lack of, lack of awareness about it and its history as well. So I think that's definitely something to consider. But I think the one thing that both myself and Chris want to make clear is that we're not diminishing the actions of the, the anti-apartheid movement. They were extremely effective during their, their heyday. They maintained a, a long and sustained struggle. But the social movements usually have a moment, they have a time. And the anti-apartheid movement time came to an end when apartheid ceased. And yes, it did evolve into other forms of action. But I think that, you know, it is now 26 years since the anti-apartheid movement disbanded. That is a lifetime away for many people. So again, we must remember that, that social movements come and go all over the world. And they often have very specific timeframes. Um, and the anti-apartheid movement is one of those rare examples of a social movement that actually succeeds. And just to plug the work that Matt and I are doing, and it's not just the work that Matt and I are doing, there's an increasing move to recognise this anti-apartheid history, and there are other public history projects going on. Um, Action for Southern Africa um, charity, which was set up after, after the elections in 1994, they're in Glasgow anyway, are, are campaigning for um, a statue of Nelson Mandela to be erected. So there's going to be some campaigns around that. But within Dundee, Matt and I have also organised a, a exhibition which is at Nelson Mandela and Scotland's relationship um, to the anti-apartheid struggle in a bit more detail. All of you mentioned really crucial points there about the anti-apartheid movement's legacy within Britain and within South Africa. I think from what you've said, it seems like almost the ultimate success of the British anti-apartheid movement was to just make the UK synonymous with the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, you mentioned how street names and uh, locations are named after Nelson Mandela and uh, everyone is aware of Britain's position within the anti-apartheid struggle but not necessarily aware of the fight for that within the anti-apartheid movement and the fight to make these ideas synonymous uh, with Britain. So just on that, why do you think it's important that we remember this legacy of the more specific aspects of the anti-apartheid movement? As a, lesson, as a lesson for, for now is that the long 
the long struggle takes time and effort. The anti-apartheid movement lasted for 35 years to achieve its ultimate aims. So it shows you that change through education, through uh, activities, through mobilization does take effort to build up. And that is a, a clear part of the anti-apartheid movement's history. I mean, Chris has mentioned the anti-apartheid movement also took a some, somewhat of a backseat. They let the South Africans, the, the, the campaigns, the messages, the anti-apartheid movement was to project those. And yes, obviously the anti-apartheid movement did carry out its own own specific campaigns around those goals, but they, they always let the oppressed people of South Africa lead the struggle. And they used their privilege here in the West to accentuate their demands for change, justice, freedom. So I think those are some really key points in um, identifying the the core ethos of the anti-apartheid movement. And just to come in a bit on this idea of um, lessons and what, what can we learn um, today and why it's important to the anti-apartheid movement, I think one of the key things in addition to what Matt has already said is this concept of building a broad coalition. The anti-apartheid movement was, had people from the radical left in British politics, it had church leaders, it had trade unionists, it had some sort of from the more, a more centrist position, it had lo lots of different people that were involved in the anti-party movement from lots of different perspectives. And that was a key aim of the anti-party movement was to build this broad coalition around anti-apartheid, which they to a large extent did. So I think in, in terms of a lesson for social movements now is that it's just talking to yourself isn't going to bring change and actually you need to try your best to reach out and I'm sure if that's what everyone's trying to do but it's really important to try and build a broad coalition around a particular theme and part of the anti-party movement's success was that it was so singularly uh, had a single objective in terms of end apartheid and it was criticized for that from different people particularly from those in the anti-racist struggle in Britain the anti-party movement didn't really play too much of a role in sort of broader anti-racist activism because it and it argued that our reasons we are uh, um, an organization set up to bring a, bring about international pressure for the end of apartheid so that's perhaps another lesson that that, that can be learned from the anti-party movement and just uh, you know adding even more detail to what chris has just said there it is a global initiative which has a national basis and also a very localized basis too. So, so again, as a as a structure, it works really well to empower people from both the top and the bottom, um, ensuring that campaigns can be tailored to a local space or, or region, um, which ensures the message then gets out as well. I think what, one point I would just make on that, we're speaking to activists about activism more broadly. They talk about like how much they would have loved to have had social media in the 60s, 70s and 80s and how that would have helped. And some of the challenges of, of conducting activism in, the, in this era without social media, we know social media can be a great benefit to, to activists and going about their work. But perhaps also, if we look into the anti-party movement's history and thinking about activism today, maybe we need to maybe go back to some of the anti-parties more sort of like out on the streets campaigning, perhaps maybe reassess the relationship social media has to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, likes on twitter or facebook do not actually equate to actual activism and i think that's also something that that has been mentioned by many of the inter uh, interviewees that we've uh, we've spoken to is that it's hard work 
and it's actually uh, it takes a long time and it can be quite despondent at times when people ignore you so it's 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 realizing that your cause is bigger than the moment that you might be in and that you need to keep going and keep working towards it and i think just to add a touch more to what chris said it's, it's about the campaigning the innovative campaigns that are produced by the anti-apartheid movements i mean some of those posters um, are really evocative you know when they 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 rolled up to shell garages, uh, cardboard tanks to, to really demonstrate the way in which Shell was implicated with funding the apartheid um, regime's uh, military wing. So, I mean, all these campaigns were, were actually very much of their time. And actually what you do see, um, speaking to many of these activists, is that they take their skills that they developed during the anti-apartheid movement and use them in their next jobs which are often in NGOs or other development um, type projects because they were the first of their kind operating in a, in a particular way and then they were able to use these to um, the advantage of other organizations as well. Brilliant um, guys I'll end it there uh, thank you so much I think that ended on a really both inspiring and practical message um, for what the fight for civil rights can can learn from the anti-apartheid movement as well as what it can what it can do moving forward in in the 21st century and the age of social media activism uh, and a more globalized structure again i can't wait to see you have an exhibition coming out and an article coming out as well soon so we'll keep an eye out for that that concludes our series on the british anti-apartheid movement however we i do have a bonus episode coming up next week with a scholar of south africa uh, matty webb on the relationship between the british anti-apartheid movement and the united states anti-apartheid movement stay tuned for that matt and chris thanks again for joining me for these past three weeks um it's been really productive Thanks.